Thanks for listening to the Cascade Vineyard Church podcast. To learn more about our community or the vineyard movement as a whole, feel free to visit our website, cascadevineyard.org. There you'll also find additional teachings, information on our various ministries, and other resources for further developing your faith. We'd love to have you join us for worship. Enjoy this message. Hey, good morning, friends. Uh, I, I don't even know what uh, what week uh, this is of quarantine. Um, just a little update. I don't have anything solid for you, but I did meet with Pastor Dorothy this week here at Christ the King, and we kind of talked about what reopening might look like. And so uh, we, we're going to be looking over a, a you know kind of a plan, and it will be very much like the rest of society, kind of a phase one, phase two program. But we're hoping that within a few weeks, possibly, and again, I don't want to put a date on it, but but soon uh, we'll be back together again. And I would just encourage you for updates. Um, Stay tuned. We will use my weekly newsletter, our Instagram feed, our Facebook page, and uh, this this forum here on Sunday mornings to to give you updates. So so we'll keep up with that. I, I want to uh, apologize up front this morning. I'm going to be a little long today. We have uh, endeavored to keep our services online under an hour, just to make it more convenient for everybody. But I don't know if we'll be able to do that this morning or not, because uh, I am going to go a little longer than I than I have been. So I just thought I would give you a, a forewarning there. And, and then I, I want to say this too. I, I encourage you. I always appreciate feedback. Uh, so I, I love your feedback. Uh, w- whether you agree with me or disagree or you have questions, it doesn't matter. I, I appreciate that. And you can just send that to me uh, by email, glennss, G-L-E-N-N-S, at portlandvineyard.org. Uh, and, I, and I would love to hear from you. So for starters, I have this theory uh, and and it goes like this. It's that uh, the challenges and complexities of life never happen in isolation. And what I mean by that is that um, when one thing goes wrong, it seems like when something happens, inevitably something else happens. You know, the the transmission goes on your car and without fail, your washing machine is going to break down next week. It just seems like there's always this one thing and then another thing. So here we are in the midst of COVID-19, this global pandemic, something that we have, uh, none of us have ever experienced before. And, and and we're kind of adjusting, we're figuring it out, you know, and things are getting better. We're learning how to navigate uh, through the complexities that we're experiencing right now. And then um, we get slapped in the face with something else. And um, the something else this time is a series of uh, murders, of African-American people uh, in different circumstances across uh, our nation. 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery was uh, gunned down by vigilantes while he was out for a jog. 26-year-old Brianna Taylor, EMT, first responder, was shot eight times by police in her own apartment. Most recently, of course, 46-year-old George Floyd uh, was choked to death by a police officer after attempting to pass a counterfeit $20 bill in a convenience store. We don't know if uh, Mr. Floyd knew that the 20 that he was passing was counterfeit or not, but let's assume he did. Let's assume for a minute that uh, he, he knew and it was intentional. 
That's a crime. I don't know the laws or the, or the penalties on that, but I'm going to guess that the penalty for passing a counterfeit $20 bill in a convenience store is probably a fine or, or possibly probation. Um, it's not death. Before I go any further, I, I want to make a disclaimer this morning. I, I have, on a couple of occasions in the past, uh, been accused of being too political. You know, just just preach the gospel. Don't don't be political. And so I want to respond to that criticism. And 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 my response is simply this: that Jesus was political. Pontius Pilate presided over the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, and Pilate was the governor. He was a a public servant. Uh, Jesus at times decried the Roman government for their treatment of the Jewish people. And then at other times, he, in, he exhorted people to do their civic duty and pay their taxes. Render unto God what is God's and under Caesar what is Caesar's. And so uh, today might be a little political, but the, the reality is this, that Jesus was political and the Bible was political and the Bible speaks to the realities of our life. It's all encompassing and, and we can't separate those things out. So I want to do my best this morning to address some of the recent events in our country. I know that many pastors did this last week. Uh, we participated in a, uh, a regional service for Pentecost Sunday last Sunday that was planned long before the, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so I wasn't able to do it last Sunday, but I think it's almost better that I'm doing it this Sunday because this is an issue that I don't think we can allow to just pass by. We can't let this just slip away. And it was like a thing for a week or two, and then it wasn't a thing anymore. It's a thing. And it's a thing that needs to be addressed. And I think it needs to be addressed uh, again and again until something actually changes. On one, on one level, I was kind of hesitant because I felt like, what can I possibly say that hasn't already been said? And part of me says, I, I don't know. I didn't know if I have anything else to say. But another part of me says, I, I, I'm going to add my voice because I cannot, with integrity, just stay silent and not say anything. Um, first, I want to recommend a book to you. It's a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, Ibram X. Kendi. I believe there's a, probably a picture on the screen for you right now. I, I read this book last year, shortly after it came out, and it I thought, yeah, this is helpful. It's good information, but I'm rereading it now in light of circumstances in our country, and it's much more impactful. So I, I really highly recommend that to you, how to be an anti-racist. Um, I also want to say this, that I, I personally have failed to respond as I should. Uh, as a Christian, as a Christian leader, as a pastor, uh, I should be a voice for justice all the time. And there may have been times in which I, I didn't do that. Um, so I, I apologize. I'm sorry for that. And, and I choose today to be a voice for justice. Um, part of the reality is this, uh, th that I, I have never been on the receiving end of prejudice. I, I mentioned in a sermon not too long ago that I am a uh, white heterosexual male and in, I'm in, therefore, the, the least discriminated against category of people. Uh, and so racism, prejudice hasn't directly affected me, but that's really no excuse. There have been situations throughout my life that ha have happened that should have piqued my awareness, that should have caused me to be more aware and really to, to be more conscious of the feelings and 
the, uh, have a deeper understanding of other people. Uh, first one of those that I can remember happened uh, in 1982. Donna and I were in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we were part of a team that spent two months there to help plant the first vineyard church in South Africa. It's actually the first vineyard church planted anywhere in the world outside the United States. Um, and we were we were living in a hotel that was under construction. We got a good deal on it. Uh, there was a reason for that because at 5.30 every morning, brank, 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 you know, they're doing construction. But um, in any case, one of the young men there um, who worked there, his name was Peter, and, and I, Peter's picture will be on your screen right now as well. He was a great guy. And he was a server in the, in the hotel dining room where he took all of our meals. And on a given morning, it was very early in our stay, first week or so we were there, and uh, I asked Peter if I could have another cup of coffee. And he looked at me and he said, yes, master. And it was like, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I like got goosebumps up and down my back. I cringed. I, I, I didn't know what to say. I was overwhelmed. I, I had asked lots of servers for another cup of coffee lots of times. No one had ever responded to me in that way. And so it was, it was a little shaking, a little rattling to me. And, and part of me said, well, you know, that was in South Africa at the height of apartheid, but that wasn't in the good old USA. About 10 years later in 1991, we were living in Southern California when a 25-year-old construction worker named Rodney King was pulled over on a California freeway for speeding. King was pulled over by the highway patrol but he had uh, led them on something of a high-speed chase, and so several LAPD officers were there as well. And shortly after uh, they stopped him, uh, the LAPD officer released the highway patrol uh, officer and said, you can go, we'll, we'll take the lead from here. And within a matter of minutes, uh, Rodney King was on the ground and was being beaten by nightsticks by four officers. He suffered 11 skull fractures, permanent brain damage, broken wrist, broken ankle, and a number of other in injuries. Um, like some of the recent events that have taken place in our country, this one was also filmed. Uh, nobody had a cell phone camera then, but next to the freeway where King was pulled over, there was an apartment complex, and there was a man named George Holliday who saw that, heard the police cars, and he came out, he had a video, old school video cam, and he was on his balcony, and he filmed the whole event, and he, um, he later sent that video into KTLA, a local news station there in Los Angeles. They aired it, and within hours, uh, all of Los Angeles erupted in, in riots. Uh, it was frightening. We live in Orange County at the time, and if you know the geography, the LA and Orange County are like two different worlds, but the reality is that they're only 30 miles apart, and the riots were happening downtown LA, and we were kind of wondering, how far is this gonna go? What's gonna happen? More recently, this was just a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago, I was with a friend of mine and we were just across the street here, across 99 at Tiger Covenant Church. And Tiger Covenant also has a food pantry like we do. And uh, they called one afternoon and said, hey, we've got some extra food that we weren't able to give away today. We, we have leftover. Can you guys use it? I said, sure, we'll take it. And that happens a lot. There's several pantries in the area. We share resources and we send some of our stuff that's left at the end of the day to another pantry. In any case, we went over to pick up their food. And while we were there, ran into the pastor of the church, David Greenwich, and he stopped to talk us, to us for a minute. And he shared about a meeting that he was at, uh, I think the day before possibly uh, in Portland, and it was a meeting uh, of pastors focused on uh, racial reconciliation. 
And during the course of the meeting, there was some conversation. And one of the pastors in the group said to some of the African-American pastors in the group, well, you guys just need to get over it. And David was appalled by that. And what he meant by that is that African-Americans need to get over it. They need to move on, not, not bring up racial injustice any longer. And we got in the car to come back. And I said to my friend, you know, I, I can't believe that that guy said that. And his response to me was, well, it, it was a long time ago. That's true. He, he was right. It was 1862 when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation freeing slaves in our country. 101 years later in 1963, Martin Luther King proclaimed, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day my four little children will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That was 56 years ago, total of 157 years since Lincoln's proclamation. And when I think of the change that's taken place in our world in the last 157 years, it's astronomical. If you think about transportation, technology, medical science, space exploration, everything that's happened that, that, that's different than it was 157 years ago, it's almost unfathomable. And yet I have to ask this question. In terms of racism, has anything really changed? I want to this morning look at one of uh, what I believe is one of the more profound passages of scripture on Injustice. It's one that was quoted very often by Martin Luther King during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, it's, of course, from the book of Amos. I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but I want to just pray first and then we'll get into it. Jesus, I just ask for healing for our country. I ask for your grace to be poured out. I ask for you to honor this message today that you would... Uh, really allow it to touch the hearts of those that are listening and hearing that we might uh, have a deeper understanding of what it means to be your people and live in your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to read from Amos. Amos 5, beginning at verse 18. Woe to you, who long for the day of the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. The noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. The subtext of that passage is 
the day of the Lord. And it was written uh, during the reign of Jeroboam II. It was about 50 years before Israel was sent into exile and about roughly 800 years before Jesus. So God used this shepherd. Amos was a, a shepherd from a place called Tekoa. It was a uh, inconsequential rural community. Uh, and he used him to incite God's people on three offenses. And I want to look at the context and what was happening at the time so that we might better understand verse 24. The first thing is this, that they were anticipating, the people of God at that time were anticipating a future move of God, but they were also denying their personal sin. They thought everything was good. We, you know, we're, we're, we're all good with God. Uh, we got it going on. Yes, God. Woohoo! And God says, no, you don't have it all going on. You think you're safe. You run away from a lion, but you run into a bear. You go into your house, you close the door, and you put your hand on the shelf, and there's a snake there, and it bites you. You, you think you're safe, but you're, you're, you're ignoring your own sin, and so you're not safe. There's danger. The passage mentions a grain offering and a peace offering, but there's no mention of a sin offering. This is a... It's a frightening passage, really. I mean, it shows how the people of God can be calling out for revival and yet turning a blind eye at injustice. I, I've said this before, you know, I'm not a revivalist. Don't get me wrong, uh, I love a good revival as much as the next guy. But a couple comments. First, Often those who are asking for revival neglect to recognize that revival very often is born out of oppression and brokenness and repentance. So, yeah, we want revival, but we don't really want to go there to get it. Second thing is this. It also seems like sometimes folks who tend to focus on revival do exactly what the folks in Israel were indicted for in this passage and, and they ignore the injustices around them while they're calling out for revival. In verse 21, God speaks in the first person and he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Why does God say that? Because they're all about you. That's why. It's strong language. I mean, there's only there's a couple places in Scripture where God says, I hate something. Not very many, but that's one. Verse 24 makes it very clear why God hates that. It's that they're engaging in worship and in celebration while they're ignoring injustice. And those two things don't equate. The people of God, if we're going to worship, should also be involved in bringing justice and addressing injustice as we see it. People who truly worship God above them should also work for justice around them. Justice and righteousness are reflections of God's character. The third indictment here is that they were simply going on about their business, worshiping and so on, and they were refusing to repent of their own sin. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen in his speech to the Sanhedrin, he quotes this very verse, and he says there that the Israelites were sent into exile because they refused to repent and they ignored injustice. That was their sin, and God hates that. So we have an opportunity today, and I want to put a try, try, try to put a little bit of a positive spin on this. The opportunity is to reflect honestly and ask. Are, are we sometimes slow to speak up against injustice and 
Can we take an opportunity now to do something about it? And, and not just racial injustice. I mean, that's on everybody's mind right now. But any injustice, anytime we see uh, any socioeconomic situation where anyone is discriminated for any reason. Look, here's the thing. The church in the United States has not historically been on the cutting edge of change in terms of racial injustice. And, and, the, and the truth is, it's costly. People might leave. People come to church for good news. They want to be comforted, not confronted. The Amos text, while it's confrontational, it, <coughs> it also offers up hope. There are other passages where it's too late. We look at uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. And Isaiah says, I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, Briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness but heard the cries of distress. That ship sailed. It's all over. There's no hope in that passage. <coughs> and I, I want to say this. In Amos, there is hope. If justice rolls like a river and righteousness like an ever-failing string, things can change. It's not too late. If we want to see revival in this country, two things I believe have to happen. One is the church is going to have to repent. And second, we're going to have to work very hard against injustice wherever we see it. We, we cannot, we cannot tolerate prejudice against our black or brown brothers or sisters on any level. And look, I... On one level, I'm not really qualified to, to even address this, but I have some ideas, some thoughts. I've been reading a lot this week. And uh, the first thing I, I think we need to do is always self-reflection and look at the reality of racism in our own lives. If you're like me, when you think of racism, you think of, uh, you, you go, your mind goes to extremes. You think of skinheads, the KKK, whatever the, whatever the most extreme expression of that is. And, the, and so you say, well, I'm not racist. You know, in fact, I, I've heard this. I'm colorblind. I don't see people and think of them as brown or black. They're just, they're just people. Uh, we're using the term race, by the way, which is probably not the best term. Uh, ethnicity is probably a better term. Um, biblically, there's only one race, the human race. Uh, we, we, we have a common origin. We all descended from Adam and Eve. <laughs> and I was, was curious, what color were they? Uh, there's a picture on your screen right now of Adam and Eve, and you'll notice that they are lily white. Um, and if you look up any depiction of Adam and Eve that was painted in Western culture, they're all white. Re realistically speaking, just based on geography, they, they probably had darker skin than that. God's word never equates membership in the human race with skin color. Whatever color Adam and Eve were, whatever color their children were, uh, they ultimately developed into a multicolored family in a multicolored world. I can say with confidence that uh, the very concept of racism, any separation of people based on color is blatantly anti-biblical and outside the design of God. Scripture calls us to stand for the dignity and equality of all people of all colors from all countries. For God so loved the world.
To be colorblind and not see race isn't really the right approach. We need to see and celebrate our differences. We need to value one another for who each other is and have the same level of equity for one person as we have for another. In Revelation chapter 7, when the Apostle John has a vision of the throne of heaven, it doesn't say, and everyone there was the same. What it, what it says is, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, every tribe, every people, and every, every language standing before the throne of God. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Racism in our country today is both uh, systemic and it's deeply ingrained. We live in a system in which a person's skin color has a profound effect on their economic, social, and political standing in, in life. And it's so ingrained that often it goes unnoticed. We don't even recognize it in ourselves when it happens. For example, if I made this statement, if I said to you, hey, the other day I was talking to my friend Jeremy. He is an African-American vineyard pastor in Louisiana. Well, that doesn't seem racist. That doesn't sound like a racist statement. But conversely, I would never say, oh, yeah, I was talking to my friend Steve. He's a Caucasian vineyard pastor in Vancouver. If I said that, you'd go, what? That's weird. You can see the distinction. These things are so ingrained in our thinking, it really is systemic in our country. Black Americans are two times more likely to be unemployed than white Americans, and that's been the case in the United States uh, since 1950. That's over 70 years. The income disparity is 50, between black and white Americans is 50% greater today than it was 50 years ago. The gap is getting wider, not smaller. Black babies die in childbirth at two times the rate of white babies, and that has nothing to do with their biology. It has everything to do with the quality of health care that they have. In the United States of America, a young black man is six times more likely to be murdered than a young white man. And these are facts. They're not fake news. When George Floyd was laying on the pavement for over eight minutes with a white police officer's knee on his throat, he said repeatedly, I can't breathe. And he was telling the truth. He really couldn't. We don't have the privilege of being able to say this is not my problem. It is our problem. It's our problem for two reasons. One, because we live in this country. But more importantly, it's our problem because we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, we cannot ignore this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, the Apostle Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who who were near. The New Testament was written in an environment very much like the one we're in today. The Jews and Gentiles, that's who he's talking about. He's not talking about black and white. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And they did not get along very well. There was tremendous strife between them. 
And as followers of Christ, they were told, hey, look, here's the deal. You have one father, one family, and there's no dividing wall of hostility between you. You need to break that down. The cross made them, and it makes us a multi-ethnic community, and that's the beauty of it. One thing I believe that we can't all do today immediately, right away, is just listen. We need to listen especially to those who are different than us and have a different experience than us. I've said a couple of times, it's sort of the word that God's been speaking into my heart this last year or so is that my world is not the world. And different people see it differently and different people have different experiences than I do. And it's on me to understand uh, their experience. James chapter one says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's good advice. Quick to listen and slow to speak. The Apostle John says, love one another. That's also very good advice. One uh, practical expression of love might be that we would be willing to lay aside some of our own preferences. We will never have a multi-ethnic culture, a multi-ethnic expression, especially in the church, without a willingness to lay aside some of our own preferences. I've shared this before, but a few years ago, I was in Nicaragua uh, at a worship service, and uh, the worship there is very celebratory, and it's loud, and it's fast, and it's upbeat. Um, and so as we were leaving, a friend of mine who was with me said, well, that wasn't vineyard worship. And I, I thought, why? Because you didn't like it? Um, vineyard worship, any worship, isn't about style or preference. It, it's about exalting God. And I think you can exalt God with a choir, with hip hop, with rock and roll. I, I don't know, maybe even with country, maybe. Paul never says, you Jews, you worship over here and you can do it your way. And you Gentiles, you guys worship over here and you can, you can worship the way you like. No, he says you come together and you lay aside some of your preference that you might be one. There's a cost to that. As a pastor, I, I can tell you that there's a cost to that because uh, it's a church growth principle. It's a proven church growth principle that if you target one cultural group and you accommodate their preferences, your church will grow faster. That's why. That's the whole reason why the church is so homogenous in America today. It's, it's by design. But is, it, is that the heart of God? Is that really what God wants for us? Let's be willing to worship and, and speak up against injustice, and let's be willing to lay aside some of our own preferences that we might make space for other people. Let justice roll like a river, and not a little stream, but a rolling river. I mean, I, I see in my mind not the Tualatin, but the Columbia. Let's be willing to use... Whatever influence we might have to speak up, I think we have to, each one of us has to ask this question, can I make a difference today? I've gone on a, a little bit long today and I want to end with two quotes from Martin Luther King. Both are from uh, his letter written from jail in Birmingham, Alabama. And on Good Friday in 1963, Dr. King was involved in a peaceful protest against racism in our country. A local justice had uh, passed a, a law against gathering, and so because of that, Dr. King, along with some others, was arrested. And in response, there were eight 
pastors, local pastors in the community surrounding him, they were all white, who wrote a letter to the local newspaper, and it was titled A Call for Unity. And in that letter, they denounced Dr. King for his actions and his methods. Again, their letter was titled A Call to Unity, and I'm sure that probably their intentions were good. A friend uh, brought the paper, actually smuggled it into Martin Luther King while he was in prison, and you can read his entire response online, but I want to just read a couple of excerpts to you in closing this morning. One, it says this, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. Martin Luther King. The second quote uh, in this letter, they, uh, these local pastors uh, called Martin Luther King an extremist. And his response to that was this. Jesus was an extremist. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? God bless you guys. I love you. I miss you. Hope to see you all soon. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to sow into what God is doing through Cascade Vineyard, we always welcome your prayers for our church body, our communities, and our leadership. If you'd like to contribute financially, please visit cascadevineyard.org give.